All right. Uh, hello, this is John Faithful Hamer, Like Phil podcast, and today I'm going to be talking with Fred Serre, who's a cartoonist, journalist, photographer. He's done all sorts of different things. And he's the kind of person that you find living in cities these days, especially in a place like Montreal, people who seem to do everything. So my first question to you is, how did you get into writing cartoons? My mother was an art teacher, and she had a particular sense of humor. In fact, they had such a great sense of humor that they moved from the south of France to Sydney, Nova Scotia. (laughs) (laughs) That's how much of a sense of humor they had. Which, of course, you know, we arrived in September. Isn't it great? You know, like the typical French people. Oh, c'est super. Oh, j'arrive au Canada, c'est gigantesque. <laughs> and then, and, and of course, we brought the Renault 16, you know, this flimsy car with like mm-hmm. the, 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 the doors are this wide. And, you know, they're driving this car in Cape Breton with the foliage and the change of colors and everything's great. And then January hits. Couldn't start it. Oh, voiture de c'est quoi cette procure? So uh, that's how we start. So she, my mother instilled in us, uh, there's uh, four of us kids in the family, when we all draw, we're all artists. And so she instilled in us this uh, appreciation of uh, drawing. And uh, what really did it was in high school, in Nova Scotia, I had a buddy by the name of Paul Chapman. And he and I would draw cartoons all the time. And I would always try to follow uh, his lead. He was just a phenomenal cartoonist, just an amazing guy. Fortunately, he got murdered in Ottawa in 1983. Oh, wow. And by that time, I was living in Ontario uh, for the summers because I was going to Concordia during the year and then working uh, at home in Cornwall. And I pick up the paper one morning and I see this photo of this guy. I thought, boy, he looks like Paul. And it's a story about how he was murdered. Wow. Came home from work in Ottawa, walked in on um, two men raping and beating his girlfriend. Oh, my God. So she jumped out the window and they grabbed him and they, they, they tortured him and killed him. So, uh, yeah, there is a bit of a downer, huh? Wow. <laughs> but... um. I, I, again, I, uh, I have a photo, a framed photo of him in my apartment, and uh, I, I think of him all the time. He's the one that got me really into cartooning, and I've kept a lot of his cartoons. In fact, a number of years ago, I, I brought a whole batch, and I brought them to his parents. And, wow. Uh, yeah. One thing that has always sort of mystified me about you is that you have this incredible sunny disposition. You're this very happy optimistic person and yet you know i talked to you and you've there's always a story you've experienced all sorts of you've seen the dark side of human nature you've been like you worked with the police and yeah. i how do you see so much darkness and it, it just, and maintain this like happy kind of disposition i think a year is working with cops you realize that uh, they need a dark sense of humor okay um gallows humor kind yeah of they have to and that's why sometimes it can come across as offensive to a lot of people I've been in the company of uh, homicide cops who have um, been on the scene. There was, okay. there was once, we went, on, we went on a call, all right? And the guy had, had uh, committed suicide, he hung himself. And the farewell note, the reason he killed himself is he, he couldn't get an erection throughout his life. Ugh. And that was his, 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 his thing. So he wrote a farewell note. Could have been saved by Viagra. Well, <laughs> the problem is he'd been hanging for so long that his, he was in an erection because the blood had gone... Oh my God. And so the cops are all like laughing and going, oh, hey, oh yeah, hey, look at you, <laughs> a little too late. But that's um, so, and, you know, and so, I mean, that's completely offensive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think there's a little bit of that. I, but I think in my family, we all have a bit of a dark humor side to us. Yeah. One of the most true things I've ever seen in a movie about that mentioned comedy is in Harry Potter, where they do that special spell where you imagine the thing that you're most afraid of. 
and you say a spell, you know, ridiculous, right? And by making fun of it, it actually takes away the fear, right? And very often, I, I don't know where I learned how to do that. I suspect it's a very natural human thing. But when you're scared of something, you make fun of it, and somehow that takes away the sting. It's not as Absolutely. scary anymore. I firmly believe in that. And so, for example, when I do my cartoons, uh, I'll do my cartoon, for example, I'll do one, I do one every week at the Gazette, and I tend to forget that some people will get offended. There's always someone <laughs> that gets offended. Especially in this day and age. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. And uh, But I forget about that. I just do my cartoon because I, it's almost like a Tourette's mild. It has to come out. <laughs> you know, it's like a bad pun. It has to come out like a, a, a bad joke or something dark about, you know. Um, yeah. Well, you, you deal with some very, very touchy subject matter. And I, I'm always kind of amazed that you get away with it most of the I time. Know. And I'm wondering, do you think there's something about comedy or there's something about that allows you to talk about difficult things and get away with things that you wouldn't if you were being really serious. Absolutely. And I think every stand-up comedian will tell you that. <laughs> I remember I, I did on Facebook, I did a survey. I think you participated in that. I know David Lieber, my friend, participated and he hated it. <laughs> um, and it, what, what all I did was I just started a discussion on my Facebook page. There was a comedian, there's a comedian by the name of David, uh, David Pride here in Montreal. A number of years ago at the Just for Last Festival, he did a, a joke that got panned by Benai Brith and the Jewish community. Um, and the joke went something like this. So I took my family out on a vacation and we visited Auschwitz. Once we were done with the tour, I went to the uh, souvenir shop, got a postcard, and uh, mailed it to my mother-in-law and wrote, wish you were here. <laughs> oh, so. <laughs> oh my God, and then, that's terrible. You know, with David at that time, David Pride said, well, <clears throat> it's a mother-in-law joke. <laughs> I, I just think it's absolutely hysterical, but not everybody did, and in fact, on my Facebook page, people got out, you know, into all out wars. Mm -hmm. And some people, you know, that I thought would actually get the joke and appreciate, no, they got ter terribly offended. So I think everybody gets offended by something. Yeah. But I'm always surprised by why, what that is. Yeah. Well, you never, you never really know, right? But, but you seem to be not very afraid. A lot of people are chastened. <laughs> There's been some people like uh, Ben Stiller has said this. Uh, there's a bunch of them that have said you can't really do comedy right, right now at this moment mm. because people are so, things are so charged and people are so upset that you just, it's not a good time to do comedy. I mean, do you think that's, that's I, true? I, well, or? Um, it's not a good time because I think everybody with social media, Facebook, Twitter, everybody now has an opinion and they'll like, they'll unleash their opinions right away because back in the days before social media, if you got really upset at a cartoon you saw in the newspaper, you'd sit down, pull out a typewriter, you know, type your letter, put a, put a stamp on the envelope, walk to the... See, it, it, by the time you do that, oh, I'll it forget took, it. It took a while. Right? Whereas now, right away, immediate offense yeah. is taken, and it's very easy. Yeah. So, no, is that a good thing? That's I don't very, know. That's very true. The, the immediacy changes everything. Like, I remember... Do you remember the old lottery tickets? Mm -hmm. I don't know if they still have them on there, but if you won you would have to, a certain amount, you would have to fill out the skill testing question. Yes. And I remember somebody who, I know somebody who works for Lotto Quebec, and he said, you would not believe how many people don't cash in the ticket just because of the skill <laughs> testing. Like that little, the little hoop yeah. to pass is enough to make a lot of people, you know, not do it, right? It's funny, I watched Chris Rock's new comedy special but tambourine yes, you, you quoted from him yeah the other yeah day. i saw that which is on netflix right now and he says that one of the things that he thinks destroyed his marriage was cell phones <laughs> he says he says because you know when i was when i was growing up my parents they would go off to work 
during the day and that was it they wouldn't see each other until the evening and so they missed each other and when they saw each other they had a bunch of you know new stuff to talk about and they would say like hey you know and how was your day and they would right because now uh you're texting and messaging constantly all the time so when you actually get together uh, you've been in touch you know, all day long. And in fact, probably one of you is a little peeved because the other person didn't respond immediately to a text or something like that. Yep. And you don't have any new stories to tell because you've been in contact constantly, you know, all the time. And he says, uh, you know, my, I was married for 16 years. And he says, my, my parents were married for, I don't remember what he says, 40, 40 years, something like that. And he says, but I actually spent way more time if you total it up with my wife than my parents spent together ever. I mean, that's the same sort of immediacy that you're talking about. But I mean, do you think this is ultimately a good thing or a bad thing? Or do you think it, it just is what it is? Like, I think it's a good thing if you're a good communicator, because like, you know, you, you always have something to say, you know, I don't think uh, <laughs> it's not like, always very smart, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, there's, I, I know a lot of friends, uh, you know, people in my own family who, you know, not the best communicators. So, yeah, I think it might be a hindrance for people like that. But for those of us who have an endless things, endless things to say, yeah. we'll, we'll never run out of things to say yeah. ever. <laughs> yeah, I guess always with these new mediums, there's always, um, depending on people's personality yeah. type, some people are better able to yes. adjust to it, right? So some people can... For instance, Susan Cain in her book, Quiet, she, which is all about introverts. She says how the internet has been fantastic for introverted people because it allows them to communicate in a way that is not, you know, face to face and kind of precisely the kinds of ways of communicating that they're normally stressed out about. They can do online in a way that is a wonderful, wonderful thing for them. It's almost as if you're going to somebody that has a severe disability and you're giving them a technology that allows them to communicate with the world, you know, Stephen Hawking style. Yeah. Like she says, it's that intense for uh, people who are really, really introverted, right? Uh, it, there's definitely, you know, there's some some loss to that. But another kind of versatility that amazes me Ed, is people like you who seem to have mastered a bunch of different domains, whether it be like photography, uh, videography, writing, uh, making cartoons, doing all these different things. How do you just get into completely new fields? Because we, we have the standard idea, which which I'm supposed to tell my students, but mm -hmm. we all know is kind of bullshit, right? Which is that, oh, you go and get a degree in something, and then you there's a proper, you get a certificate and a degree, and you go and do that thing. But increasingly, people who are doing a particular thing are doing it just because they went and started doing it. Like, I mean, I know a bunch of programmers and system administrators who they didn't go and do a degree in computer science. I mean, they did a degree in music yeah. or they did a degree in philosophy or they didn't do any degree. They just learned how to code by working with other people. And now that's their job and they're making like lots of money on it. So how do you just reinvent yourself again and again? And how did that start? Well, I think uh, when you're self-employed, the one thing you never say is no. <laughs> So if, if your phone rings, or can you, you do it, that? Sure. <laughs> when you want it, um, anything that comes my, I always say yes. So I'll would, keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you clean my toilet? Yeah. Can you dress up like a clown? <laughs> yeah, you actually did do that once. <laughs> I did. Good lord. Yeah, it was you a have clown. The craziest stories. <laughs> 
wine of Joe Pesci. Yeah. What am I, a clown? So you just say yes to... Yes. So to for example, a uh, while back I was asked, can you just translate these three paragraphs from French to English? Oh, okay. It's easy. <laughs> then all of a sudden I find myself in the dressing room of the Montreal Canadiens as the translator for the Canadians or the Boston Bruins. I'm going, what the hell am I doing here? So I, I did that for a, f a few years as well. So whenever the Boston Bruins would come and play in Montreal during the playoffs, uh, I was hired by the team to be their um, their translator. So for example, after the post-game, um, during the post-game uh, news conference, the coach is uh, answering questions both in English and French. At that time it was Claude Julien. And so the Boston uh, organization wanted to know what, what questions the French media were asking. They don't want to miss anything. So I was hired. And it was great. I had like full access to the dressing rooms and I would hang out with them. Uh, then, uh, so there, the, how, you know, how did this happen? You just, you're, you right? say yes. Somebody so asks you if you can yes. do it. Yeah. Always say yes. Yeah. That's interesting because uh, Eric Weinstein, who is right now a major manager for Teal, uh, Teal's Money, right over down in California. He, in an interview once, somebody asked him about the imposter complex. And they said, you know, you're trained as a physicist and yet you're managing like, you know, billions of dollars. Like what's going on? How do you do this? And he goes, well, he said something very similar to you. He said, well, you just say yes. If somebody asks you, can you do this? You just sort of shake a little bit and say yes. And then you go and figure out how to do it. Right. And very often you're creating the position that's exactly they, it, it didn't exist already, right? That's exactly Which it. increasingly is happening. And I, I don't, you know, as, a, as an educator, I don't really know what to do about this because the official line that I'm told to tell to my students, I know is not true anymore. <laughs> like you, you go and get a degree in a particular thing and then you think you're going to work in that field. It almost never works out that way, right? And I guess this happened to you with journalism, right? Yeah, all the so time. So what, what happened with journalism? After I graduated, I uh, worked as a technical editor, um, and I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, I was <laughs> I was working for a company called Philips Information Systems, writing computer manuals. And at that time, oh, uh, you know, I was making thirty thousand. Really oh God! <laughs> oh, I was I was making thirty thousand dollars a year, and I hated my job. And I get a phone call from a friend of mine. She was the editor of the at that time was the Chronicle in the West Town. She says, "How would you like to come to work? Uh, I have a spot open as a reporter." So I took a fifteen thousand dollar cut in pay. Wow. And I went to work there and my father had a fit. He says, are you crazy? <laughs> you had a pension there. You had a great salary. Well, within five months, Phillips shut shut their doors. They put 500 people out of work. Whoa, so I guess and call. I ended up spending, call. I spent eight years uh, at the Chronicle. And among those eight years, I was a crime reporter. And the reason I became a crime reporter is because one day, one of the sergeant detectives says, hey, you smart ass journalist, you think it's easy to be a <laughs> cop? You, I dare you to come with me. We're going to do a ride along for two nights. Oh, wow. So I said, okay. <laughs> So I did it, and I—that's I, when I caught the bug, the the the, the whole police angle, <clears throat> and he trusted me for some reason. So I did a lot of patrols with him, and he put me in touch with other cops, and I started investigating gangs, street gangs. Um, I got went right in there. Now, see, just just to show you how the, the unfolding of events. The reason I lost my the reason I was fired from the Chronicles, I tried to start a union with a bunch of other journalists, <laughs> and we lost the, we lost the vote. And one by one, just like in Goodfellas, at the end of the Goodfellas, everybody, we all went down. Yeah. Yeah, we all went down. So I got fired. and But within three months, I got hired by the, uh, the the largest police union in Canada. Wow. So you see, it's just ding, 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 all connect the dots. And uh, it was a great move. So what kind of stuff do you do for, have you done for the police? Like, what is, I mean, are you like a yeah. PR guy for them? Well, or? I'm, I'm the media relations guy for the uh, RCMP union in Quebec. 
not many people know this, but until 2015, it was illegal for RCMP to even consider uh, unionizing. Oh, I didn't know that. So I'm I'm part of an association that launched um, a suit, or a motion before the Supreme Court of Canada, and they ruled in our favor that RCMP officers have a right to unionize. We use a charter of uh, charter rights uh, to to get that done. So right now it's legal. So I'm I'm, I'm I do the media relations. I I put out a magazine. I do press releases. I go on patrols with the cops. Um, we organize an awards gala for police officers every year. So I handle the media there. And uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I I have police officers come and speak to my classes with some regularity, especially my good and evil class, the the ethics class. And very often what you hear from police officers, and I think this is actually a general pattern in our society, is they'll say, you can't criticize what we do until you've, unless you're in law enforcement and you know how difficult this job is, you can't say anything about it, right? And there's a certain amount of logic to that because definitely, I'm sure as you discovered in the ride along and I've discovered having long conversations with lots of uh, police officers. They deal with humanity at its worst, at its right. So I understand how nurses have a very similar yep. situation, right? So I, I get that that feeling, but the problem is, is increasingly everybody's saying that. So doctors say you're not allowed to critique doctors unless you're a doctor, right? And, and nurses say that, and I've heard it from people in my profession, you know, profs and teachers mm -hmm. saying you can't criticize. Uh, teachers unless you're a teacher right you can't criticize and so this sort of feeds into this expert culture where everybody's in their echo chambers and their silos and we're not allowed to actually uh, say anything about anything right so that's why i find people like you that are generalists that have your finger yeah. in like a lot of different pies and are really interesting because if we're going to have democracy and the open society we need to have a general understanding, right? Because, I mean, it would be terrible if we all were in these airtight communities that were sealed from any criticism. Mm -hmm. I mean, but how do you respond to people who say, like in, in law enforcement, who mm -hmm. say you can't criticize us unless you're well, a cop? Unfortunately, there, was way, there are way too many police officers who make it easy uh, f f to be shot on. <clears throat> I'll, I'll give you one example that comes to mind right now. Almost a year ago, there was the floods out in West Island. Um, sure, yeah. Um, and there was a situation where there was a local guy. It was a guy in Roxborough. He'd started to start building sandbags on, on one spot. And the cops had said, you can't do that. So the media was there. They were all there, cameras. And these these young cops arrested the guy. Oh. So instead of, you know, like the guy, it was he was obviously tired. He'd been up for like days, in, you know. And he's just doing what he can to, to. Here was a glorious opportunity for the cops to go, hey, you know what? Let's help this guy. Yeah. Come on, guys. Great PR no, opportunity. No, what they did, they arrested him in front of all these citizens who were all screaming and yelling, don't do that. Like, th that's a class. I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of retired cops who said, you know, they would have done it differently because they saw the cameras. Let's go in there. Let's help this guy. But no, nope, we had to do it by the book. And, and the, the young cops there looked like a bunch of brutes and bullies. Mm -hmm. And I remember commenting on Facebook, you know, that's, I, I can't defend that. I realize yeah. they have a job to do and you got to do things by the book. <laughs> but once upon a time, you know, there are a lot of cops who would have done, yeah, they would have had, you know, they would have been given shit by their bosses later, but they just, they would have scored amazing PR points. Yeah. Well, I, I find one real difference I've seen in policing in Montreal in my lifetime is that when I was a kid growing up in the Southwest in Verdun, 
the police officers, for the most part, actually lived in the neighborhood yeah. where they worked or, or close by, right? And so they most of the, the cops that we knew in the neighborhood, they had they either lived like in Verdun or they had family. Their mom lived, you know, like there. Their sister lived there. And so they were connected to the community in a real way. And so they, I think that makes it much more likely that you're going to view the people that you're dealing with on a daily basis as as human beings, fellow citizens, where increasingly what I find is the uh, Montreal police force, most of them live out in small, homogeneous uh, towns outside of Montreal, and they come into Montreal uh, like an invading force, and they have contempt for Montreal. They think Montreal is this, you know, very kind of horrible place, right? And so they're coming in, and they don't have that connection to the community, right? Which is, and I mean, this is a widespread problem. You see this also with uh, yeah. public schools. You see this with hospitals. Like if if the teachers and the educators have their own kids in the school that they're teaching at or kids from their community, they're going to have a different attitude towards it than if you're coming in from the outside. If you're a 22-year-old cop living in Saint-Julie on South Shore, mm -hmm. but you patrol in Hochelaga-Maisonneuve, yeah. well, there might be a bit of a problem. <laughs> you know, how, how do you respond to a domestic uh, abuse case in Hochelaga-Maisonneuve on a Friday night of a full moon um, when you know, you're, you're still living with mom and dad in Saint-Julie? <laughs> I'm not saying you can't do the job, but chances are, you know, if, unless unless you live in that area, there's a gentleman by the name of Frank Taylor, a constable, he's retired now from Montreal, um, and he spent twenty, I think, twenty eight years as a cop in Pierrefonds, and he lived in Pierrefonds. Oh wow! And he was he was uh, you know he was he was sometimes by the book, but most times he used his his brains and uh, common sense. And I still turn to him now, you know, on Facebook, and I ask him about situations, and I always know that he's going to give me the common sense answer because also he lived th where he patrolled. Yeah. You know? Well, it gives you, yeah, you have that connection to the community and you have, you're less likely to respond uh, to go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? You're not, uh, I mean, I, a much more extreme case of this mm. would be in Baltimore when I was in grad school oh God, living yeah. in Baltimore. Yeah. That was absolutely unbelievable. So you, I mean, live, they, you live the wire every day? The, <laughs> the wire is basically a documentary. I mean, it's, it's completely, they don't exaggerate at all. It's actually like that in Baltimore. But the one thing I noticed with Baltimore, which we don't have here, you know, thank God, is that not only are they coming in from the outside as, a, as an invading, uh, an occupying army from the outside, no connections to the community. Uh, but they also have the problem there that the police are paid horribly. Right? They're really not paid well at all. So the only way you can actually make money often is to is to you know be corrupt in some way i mean we like uh, to give you an example annalise and i used to go to this club all the time it's a fantastic club called 1722 on charles street and we there was a, a guy he was sort of the house dealer in the club right and he he dealt you know ecstasy coke and things like that like in this club and he, everybody called him cop john right and we thought it was a joke like you know the way you would call like a big guy tiny or something like that. Like we thought it was a joke, Cop John, until we saw him on the front page of the Baltimore Sun and on the nightly news being taken away in handcuffs. He actually was a police officer. He was a Baltimore City police officer. Supplementing he his had, income. He had uh, like a few dozen people working for him. 
he had like and they would literally show up to the club they would do raids uh, confiscate all sorts of drugs and then right away go and like sell them out in the open in a club being known as cop john yeah driving like finishing their shift uh, showing up uh, in a cop car like in their civvies but in a cop <laughs> getting dropped off by like a a co-worker it was just completely out in the open and the investigation into it one of the things that they said is okay yes we have a systemic problem with corruption but much as Giuliani when they brought him down the Mexican government brought him down Rudy Giuliani to uh, deal with the problems they had with Mexican police and widespread corruption and the first thing Giuliani said was you need to pay your cops like way way more money there's no way somebody can live off of what you're paying them so just in order to put food on their table and take care of their kids they need to be corrupt uh, in order to just make a living wage right so there was a similar problem in baltimore not as extreme but do you think is corruption a really big problem in the law enforcement in Montreal, Canada today, or do you think it's... I think there's less and less because there's way too many young cops now who are terrified of making a mistake and, you know, the ontology, they don't want to hear anything about that. Uh, I think they're extremely careful and uh, maybe that this is the new batch, new generation of, of, of police officers. So you don't think there's so corruption is pretty much... I, I don't think it's... Largely a, a no. thing of the past? I, yeah. Yeah, that's my sense too. But then I, I've mentioned this to people and they say, oh, you're being naive. But I, my sense is that um, there's, right, there's doesn't seem to be much happening. I mean, there there are some signs, right? I remember there was, uh, there was a, like a, a drug delivery service, which was passing out flyers, at, like business cards at Sherbrooke Metro and at like in the middle of like, you know, middle of the day, like handing out like mm -hmm. flyers, like for a delivery service. And I remember thinking, there's no way this can exist if they're not paying somebody off. Like, how could you be delivering that in the middle of the day? But when I asked some um, officers that I know, I said like, you know, what's going on? How can somebody be you know, doing this? Uh, they, they said they tried to call the number and the number had been disconnected. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, what do you think about something like that? What do you, oh boy! What would be your guess? Because you know way more about like police stuff than I do. So, well, I I think it, unless they have somebody under surveillance, right? And they're just waiting, and they're just you know waiting for it to, to add up. Oh, it's like some sort of a trap, right yeah. There, yeah. There might be a lot of that. <laughs> you know, I, I I just recall when when I used to be a journalist, and I would always have so. Like, if we think information is being controlled today through the hierarchy of uh, Montreal Police, you know, media media relations department, it's I mean it's it's pretty tight right now. But twenty five years ago, it was kind of tight. But as a journalist, I always had if there's an investigation of a murder, I always know who I, I can turn to two or three cops, um, and he'll give me he'll give me leur juste. Okay. Whereas you know if you go through an information officer, he'll just give you the standard line. I wonder if that exists today. If you can, if there, if there are cops within who can, who aren't scared, you know. I always yeah. had a, a handful that I knew would talk to me anyway, and even if they were caught, they didn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> really. Whereas uh, I think everybody today is, is on pins and needles and afraid to get caught. Oh, every time I've had uh, police officers come speak to my classroom, it they've had to clear it with oh, their God. superior, oh. and I've had to tell all I tell all of my students. Uh, 
you know, give me your cell phones, your laptops. There can be no recording devices. I make it very, very clear, yeah. you know, what what is said in the classroom remains in the classroom, and we don't. And it's it's very because they are afraid of somebody taking a little cell phone you know, video because in the class when i have them in the classroom it's no holds barred like we have like for instance during the the student strike right the maple right. spring i had uh two people who were leaders of the of the protest come in and give their side of the account and and explain everything that they had seen and experienced the police brutality and stuff like that and the students like listen to their account and then ask them lots of difficult questions right then i had two police officers who were on the other side right wow. and they explained uh, what had actually happened and they actually they brought um so they showed me cell phone kind of like video footage right. of things that they had seen which did not make it into the mm -hmm. media mm -hmm. at all and they gave their side of hmm. the situation but both both sides we're very clear about the fact, okay, if we want to have an honest conversation, we want to know you're not going to record any yeah. of this. So, wow. so they both took a lot of questions, difficult, really difficult questions. And then I had the students Excellent. write an essay uh, where, oh, they, where they had to sort of, based on what they had heard from these these sort of witnesses, right? right? And then also what they had read in the, in the news and what they had seen, they had to decide um, what they thought of the situation mm -hmm. who they thought was was at fault right now i was um i was surprised that maybe it's because they're west island kids <laughs> i don't know but uh the vast majority of them sided with the cops wow yeah they it was uh, well vast majority it was about sort of two out of three of the essays um said that they thought that uh, that the cops were they they sympathized with their situation a great deal. I mean, which I thought was fascinating. Hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, definitely the only way that could happen is if there were assurances that there would be no. Right. You know, every year we have the Quebec Police Awards Gala. We've been doing it since 1999 and it's, it's at the end of November and it's, there's usually about 35 police officers from across the province who are being honored for acts of bravery, investigations and so on. Um, and it involves RCMP, Ciotte de Québec, Montreal, Quebec, uh, Laval, any police force uh, in the province. And it's usually, it's a very positive event. But even then, the Ciotte de Québec and other police departments, they send in their information or media relations person to make sure that the police officers stay in line. So, for, and it's, it's quite interesting because, I mean, I understand everybody has a job to do, but they also want to make sure the cops don't say anything that could be taken out of context or if if there's a, uh, an ongoing court case going on so they're like watching what the police officer is saying to the media wow so even even in a situation where it is very positive good pr you have that i think it's it's a new reality nowadays yeah well i think it's just so easy in this thing i mean perhaps it's always been easy but it, it feels like it's more easy now to take something out of context and to misrepresent something and to make somebody sound really terrible by just like taking, for instance, 10 seconds of, of a, an hour long interview, for instance, yeah. and making them sound. And so if you have an ax to grind and you really want to make the police look terrible or you want to make that you it's it seems like it's easier to do it now mm. than it has been in the past. But what is the most sort of heroic thing that you've ever personally sort of heard of or seen like in your, um, your years of working with law enforcement? 
Well, it's really interesting. In 2000, I applied to join the RCMP. So I'd gone through the the I various phases. That. Yeah, in 2000. So and one of the things I, I had to take was a first first responders course. So I passed that. Well, it's really interesting because when you, if you've ever taken a, a first aid, I uh, haven't. Yeah. Yeah. It, the things that stay with you in moments of emergencies, and I've had three occasions to do exactly that. Um, and I just happen to sometimes find myself in the, in the, in the <laughs> well, position. You're, everybody says you're you like know? Forrest Gump. You're always crazy. there. You're always there at the most random moment. It's there's, kind of eerie. There, there was one time I was driving to go play hockey in Saint Lazare, and I was I was driving from the plateau to Saint Lazare. It was February. It was a very cold night, and I'm on my way along uh, Lachine on Highway 20. Up ahead, I see there's a uh, traffic is moving in the right lane, and there's a car on fire, and there's a guy trying to pull wow. someone out of the car. So I parked right in front, and I went in. And I said, you need help? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we tried to pull this guy out. of this. So his front end of the car was bashed in and the flames were, were licking away at the, the engine at the front. And he was stuck. His legs were stuck in the, you know, the below the steering wheel and he oh was on the passenger God. side. And his, his hip was broken, you could tell. So we're trying to pull him out, pull him out. And the flames were just growing and growing. So we yanked him out. Whoa. And it wasn't, you know, time disappears. But maybe 10, 15 seconds later, the car went. Poof. Oh, my God. And. It, I, even it's like as an it, action movie. Even as it, as it was happening, I was wondering, where's the big boom? The earth-shattering kaboom. <laughs> There's no kaboom. It, it was just like this, and this blast of heat. And so things that came back to me from my first aid training, one is to keep the, the, the guy uh, conscious, just keep talking to him, make sure he can breathe properly. Um, and uh, it was surreal. It was absolutely surreal. And then he, as he came to, he says, oh, the, what about my friends? I said, what, there's somebody else? I'm like, yeah, my friends are in the car. And at this point, there was no fire trucks. There was no ambulance. It was just me oh. and this other guy. And finally, the fireman dropped by, and, they, and I said, uh, he says there's somebody in the car. Okay, no problem. Come on. No, there was nobody else. <laughs> oh, really? He was just out of his mind yeah. at that point? Yeah. Like yeah. delirious? And what had happened to him as I, I ended up talking to witnesses is that uh, he was speeding on Highway 20, darting in and around cars, and he hit the back of, uh, you know, those buses that take people to the airport? Yeah. Uh, the 747 bus. Mm -hmm. And then spun out of control and... Wow. Yeah. So then I, I, I got to the hockey arena full of blood and, and, and dirt. And Norm Morris said, one of my hockey players says, okay, well, well, what happened to you now? <laughs> and then there was another time I, I did the Heimlich maneuver on a guy at a patio, a restaurant patio on San Denis Street. And again, the, the first aid training just, just kicks in. And so I, I, I could just hear a weird noise. And I turn around and I see this poor guy grabbing his, his throat and he fell. And when he fell, he hit his head on the concrete and he started bleeding and shaking. And everybody was screaming, so I just dove right in and did the Heimlich. That's amazing. Well, you know, it, one of the things that's very shocking in situations like that is that most people freeze yeah. and do nothing. And I, you know, where I teach at John Abbott College, one of our programs is we have like an EMT program oh, right? wow. for people who are going to work in ambulances and stuff like that. And I've had lots of really interesting conversations with these students. And they say, you know, you get all of this training in what to do in a situation and you, you do uh, practice it again and again and again and you mm. do tests on it and you know it kind of intellectually and you know it all this stuff but he said very often the first time you know when you're doing your stage and stuff like that when you're the first time you actually are on a bloody very mm. intense scene uh, people they puke they pass out mm. they freeze and just can't act right yeah they uh and so you get past that right i mean every they say you know everybody gets past it but at first and so i'm i'm always amazed when i encounter people who mm -hmm. just 
seem to have this this heroism where they uh, my my uncle Peter is like this. I mean, he's he's the kind of person like a plane crashed in his neighborhood and was engulfed in flames, and everybody's standing around looking at it, and he's the one who just like runs push pushes past the crowd and goes and saves mm. the people, right? So I'm always amazed by like what do you think it is about? Is it just training people who behave in a heroic way I think when everybody else just like stands by and instinct? It's personality, you know. Uh, I, it's just instinct. Like I've I've been told by some people, you know, you're, you're being stupid. You're putting yourself in danger for nothing. <laughs> I, I just do it. I mean, I I jumped on. I went to the SAQ a couple of months ago, and there was this woman that tried to run out with uh, bottles of uh, champagne. <laughs> Really? Yeah. <laughs> she she punched the guy that was blocking her way, pushed him out of the way. He fell. I jumped on her and I was riding her. <laughs> <laughs> and and this is on the here on St. Catherine, the village uh, right next to the the park. And she was strong and I was I was riding her. It looked like ridiculous. That is And then the manager insane. came out, she punched him, he fell, and I'm riding her. And the security guard is across the other side. So finally he shows up, he says, Just let her go, let her go, let her go. I said, Are you sure? And I felt her jacket ripping. Wow. But there were people standing around filming. Just like that. Uh, not doing anything. So I let her go. And <laughs> I thought she really needed a drink. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I worked when I was a teenager. I, you remember Steinberg's? Like yes. They, they're out of business now. The big grocery store chain in, in Quebec. I worked for the Steinberg's in Alexis Neon Plaza. And for I was a bagger. Then I was a cashier. And then for quite a while, I was uh, a checker. I would walk around like in plain clothes and... Kind of uh, see people. You're see a floor people. walker. Yeah, like just seeing people like like shoplifting, and I remember being so confused by the fact that like these sketchy looking people, primarily guys, these sketchy looking dudes would like come in and they would go to the meat section, and they would like steal lots of like filet oh, mignon yeah. and lots of steaks and things like that, and I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, why and so i asked my my manager once i'm like what is these people want meat so badly (laughs) he said he said well they're they're drug addicts and there are dealers that will accept like steak for drugs (laughs) it's a commodity on the on the street it's a you could like trade steaks so but i was just i sometimes i'd stop these guys and they would have their their all their trench coat just lined with steaks. Yeah. Like, you know, what, like, what are you a zombie? Like, what is this? It's, you're the bloodthirsty monster. But I put yeah. myself through university by being a floor walker at Kmart. Really? In, in Cornwall, Ontario. I did that between 1981 and 84, 85. And I caught two guys with a canoe on top of their heads walking right out of Kmart. <laughs> Chasing people <laughs> down the street, running after them, and as you're running, what a am I canoe. doing? Yeah, that's why well, you can't make that up. I had people waiting for me after my shift, you know, to talk. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest is I see at the dollar stores. You know, the dollar stores they have floor walkers, and these people are, you know, risking a char- like serious charges for a bunch of stuff that's like ninety nine cents yeah. a pop, like yeah. they'll for eight dollars worth of stuff, and they're trying to and i remember the first time i saw it i said to the the manager of the store the one on on Senado, i said uh, is this actually a problem and he said you would not believe how much stealing there is at a dollar store <laughs> it's like he said i've worked at a number of different stores uh, you know stuff that was like much more you know much more expensive high-end and i've never seen as much theft as i do at at the dollar store it's uh but yeah, I mean, this sort of goes back to the question I was asking you before. I wonder what is the 
key because I mean a lot of people that know you have remarked on this that you have this kind of youthful uh, exuberance and energy you seem very happy and kind of uh, your lust for life is mm. what is your uh, your secret or are you even aware of it I don't know I just have fun <laughs> you know any, anytime something happens that I'm involved and I go like for example when I was writing that woman writing that woman in the SAQ I was thinking this is gonna be a great story for my Facebook page <laughs> <laughs> I just see it that way. I just see it as, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of silly. Some people might say, you know, just grow up. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I just always love being able to tell a story. Um, there's a gentleman that you and I know quite well, Christian Gravener, who's oh, just, yeah, yeah, just an yeah. amazing storyteller. Yeah. And I, I love what he does because he, he does a little bit what I do, but I think he, he has such a good variety of stories and he's always dealing with people hard on their luck, you know, yeah um bars and you know outstanding stories just amazing yeah, i stories. don't know where he finds some of those people he, he'll he go and find like some bank robber from the 1960s that has recently got out yeah. and he'll find out where they live and he'll have like a three hour long conversation yeah. with them and it's this you know crazy story like it's back in the uh late 80s and early 90s when i worked at the chronicle i covered the street gang and uh which one uh the rebels oh Really? Yeah. The West Island Rebels. The West Island Rebels. You covered them? Oh, I did. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I got to know some of the gang leaders quite well, including this one guy, Jeff uh, Colgrove. He also by the name went by the name of Carvery. He's now in jail. He's actually finally been caught after being on the run for like 20 years. Wow. He's wanted by the FBI. Um, but I knew all the cops that were after them. Anyway, we're, we're working on a project now that uh, it's still in the formative uh, state, but we, we are reuniting some of the gang members and the cops. Some, a lot of these gang members have, you know, remade their lives and they're, you know, some of them are doing time. Um, but I, we recently had coffee. One of these gang members was a senior gang member. Now he's completely rebuilt his life. He's got like eight kids. And we all sat down and had a coffee. It was fascinating. <laughs> you know, and it, it was, as they all talked about it, they said, you know, it was like a cat and mouse game. Everybody had their job. You're the yeah. cop. You're supposed to catch me, and I'm the bad guy. I'm supposed to be on the run. But there was a, a sort of a, a respect, like a Looney yeah. Tunes respect yeah. for the other side, Absolutely. and not. Uh, yeah. Well, what do you think happened with with Montreal when it comes to crime? Because it, I mean, we used to have the West End Gang. We had it was Montreal for a while was the bank robbery capital of North America. Right? It was a, there's a lot of crime here, and then suddenly it all it was all gone, almost all gone, and now we have one of the lowest murder rates yeah. in the industrialized West. Do we have, you know, yeah, so I, what I do you think happened? I, I don't know. I don't know. But people have discovered Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> have they seen the light? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember being a kid in Verdun and there were, there were people who had connections to, to various gangs and going into becoming kind of a career criminal. That was one of the, options sort of career options mm. you know like if you had a particular skill set or certain connections it's like oh yeah well i could do that as mm. well right and it was on the table as a, a viable option and it seems to me that it's not anymore and that's uh that's we'll interesting see. when i talk to people who are growing up now in in those kinds of neighborhoods they say it's yeah. it's not as much right I mean, some people say that it's because the uh, everything's been sort of consolidated now by the Hells Angels and there's there's not like random street gangs well, you, you competing heard for territory and things you, like that. You heard recently how the Montreal police were sort of behind the scenes being thankful to the Hells Angels for helping sort of clean up the whole fentanyl situation. No. Because the Hells Angels were sending some of their thugs to go beat up <gasps> some of these drug dealers who are putting wow. fentanyl in the... 
and all of a sudden there's been a drop in the number of cases of fentanyl deaths um and that is fascinating yeah, this happened this they're summer. policing themselves yeah <laughs> well i mean that's that's always the sense that i i got about a lot of these these sort of uh things like you know prostitution when it was illegal and gambling and drugs that the law enforcement they sort of understand that there's a big market for this and that it's going to happen and so they just try and sort of come to some sort of agreement whereby okay it's only going to happen in this area let's say you know red light district or something mm -hmm. like that and in general i mean this is what i've i've heard from you know once again when i have these older police officers who are in my class talking to students when there's no recording devices what they say is they say look uh, we know there's going to be like uh, a drug trade out there because there's a huge demand so and most of us uh, are against the war on drugs. We think it's ridiculous, but as long as it's the law, uh, we we have to enforce it. But who would we rather have it uh, run by? Sort of uh, balding middle-aged men with you know lawns who live in the suburbs, or testosterone-pumped like teenage guys who are you know trigger happy and always looking to prove themselves and filled with attitude. He said, obviously, we want it to be run by pragmatic middle-aged men it's much and so they they made the same it's point cleaner. you just said that yeah it's cleaner that it, uh, the the hell's angels for instance like they they run it like a like a large corporation and they you know try to keep out of the news and not have a lot of drama but i did not hear about that fentanyl mm -hmm. situation mm -hmm. that's amazing so they've actually been realizing that this is yes. a threat to the bottom line and it's oh yeah uh, and so they've sent, and there's been, it's been going down. Yes. It's been a, yeah. <laughs> <That's fantastic. laughs> that, that is absolutely fantastic. And is, I mean, do you, do you know any of the people involved at all? Or are you just uh, like old contacts or? Yeah. Yeah. Old, really? Old contacts. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was such a good story. Yeah. No, well, they, apparently that's, uh, you know, I was mentioning that story about Cop John and that club in Baltimore, but apparently... Uh, one of the reasons why these places would have house dealers was not so much because of, you know, corruption and kickbacks and things like that. It was usually because they just wanted, to, they're like, okay, we know there's going to be drug use on our premises and that's more or less impossible to stop. So we would at least like to know yeah. that the person there is not going to be giving people garbage so that they're going to be going out on stretchers and ambulances, which looks terrible for the club, which causes the cops to raid us, which causes the city to shut us down, which is bad for business. So uh, apparently they said, you know, it, it's not as if we're in on this. We're just sort of turning a blind eye to this person doing mm -hmm. it because we you don't want to make sure that things are on the up and up. So that's, I mean, that kind of goes to exactly the yeah. the same issue you're talking about, but right. So where do you think, uh, where do you think you're going to be in 10 years? Because so many of the industries that, that you're interested in, so many things, I mean, things are changing very rapidly. Photography is, oh, yeah. is changing as a, as a profession. Journalism is changing as a profession. What do you think you're going to be doing in 10 years? Because you keep reinventing yourself. I have to, right? Uh, one thing's for sure, there's be, there'll be no retirement. <laughs> there is no such thing for freelancers. There's no such thing as a retirement. You you work until you, you, you're done. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I guess I do so many things that I kind of hope that some, well, you know, hopefully I'll still be doing some of these things. Yeah. I, I, I'm sort of confused about the retirement thing. Because on the one hand, I think, right, retirement age of 65 
was instituted by uh, Bismarck in Germany at a time when not a lot of people lived to right. be past 65. So it was it was kind of like, yeah, here, if you make it to 65, we got you covered for the rest of the yeah. time. And now with people living longer and longer, it seems like, can we really afford as a society to give everybody like 20 yeah. year vacation at the end, right? Like 20 years of golf or something like that. However, uh, then again, you know, with, with automation mm. and increasingly a lot of jobs are disappearing, yeah. right? They can be done by, by a machine, right? By a computer. Mm. And so we're going to have more and more people that are going to be out of work. And it's not going to be a, a question of, right? There's going to be a lot of people that we just don't need their labor, even if they are very qualified. Mm. So then I don't know, right? I don't know what we actually do in that situation. I mean, we could have a guaranteed income supplement, which a lot of people mm. say we have to do. And if we did have something like that, it would make it much more possible to have more people like you in the world, uh, freelancers that, because if you could count on a base income, right? I mean, yeah. do you think that would, that would this nice. is something Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and a number of people have been talking about in the last few years. They say, if we had a guaranteed income, it would actually increase the amount of creativity I think so. and new ideas because mm. people wouldn't have to worry about, okay, how am I going to pay my rent and eat? They'd have a basic amount and then you could try new things. And there's less stress, less health problems related to stress. And like you say, it would, it would boost creativity. I think that's what uh, be the best thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for thank coming you, on the John. podcast. It was wonderful talking with you and uh, I appreciate I'll it. talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you.